Hello everyone, welcome to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology, and with me today is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. If there's a topic you'd like us to cover on the show, feel free to email us at fromnowheretonothingpodcast at gmail.com or contact us on our Facebook page. Last week, we began the examination of our namesake by looking at the abstraction of nowhere. This week, we'll follow up by probing an equally amorphous topic. Philosophers and scientists have long said that nature abhors a vacuum. And to this day, physicists have found ways to fill that vacuum with quantum fields and frothing particles. So if a vacuum state has remained elusive throughout history, does this mean that a total lack of matter and energy is impossible? Today, we're looking into the gaping maw of nothing. <laughs> so, so I'm looking into the gaping maw of the Mandalorian helmet that's <laughs> sitting on the stand over here and seeing these very interesting twirling circles from because it's 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 taking the the reflection from the light in this room and messing with the blinds and it's almost hypnotic. Yeah, but it doesn't that doesn't exist. No. No, it's just, that's just nothing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's imaginary. So what is nothing? <laughs> I'm going to laugh a lot today because this, this is fraught with the peril of puns intended and, un, and, and otherwise and, and reversals. If what is nothing? <laughs> the absence of something. Well, I'm not being... <laughs> what is nothing? Nothing isn't nothing <laughs> isn't because there can't be nothing because if nothing exists as a word one is quantifying or or um, uh, forming formulating a concept of a space which implies boundaries which means something <laughs> is around the nothing so nothing can be found what okay. is a black hole so so we'll say what is nothing for the yeah. end okay <laughs> <laughs> we'll go in reverse Sorry, order I, should, I didn't do the right thing we'll yet. go we'll go in the reverse order <laughs> so what uh, do you want to explain what parmenides and those he influenced thought about nothing we'll start at the beginning we'll start at the beginning and oh okay so nothing I'm trying. Yeah, it's it's not. I've I've been practicing this too. I've been talking to myself about this this <laughs> week. I, is 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 no thing, but the idea is that it's an unidentifiable thing. That, that not that it doesn't exist, but that it's it's like nowhere. Is it implied a, a space, but a space that we haven't bothered to get to know or to understand, or as we talked about last week. So, so nothing is something that is not extant to any degree. Uh, it's something that is uh, is not identifiable, or something that. Later down the line, but we start with Parmenides, but down the line it becomes, uh, we, we toss about things like, well, what's bothering you? Nothing. We don't mm. want to talk about it. So it's a, it's a stand in. So it's a, it's a, it's a stand in for something. It's a placeholder. Yeah. And interestingly enough, in, in early physics, like we're about to talk about, it, it was sort of kind of the same thing without them knowing it really. 
But right, right. So well, yeah, there's sort of two position, positions on it. Um, the one starting with Parmenides and the other one starting with Aristotle. But Parmenides, um, you know, essentially kind of took up the position that nothing exists because we can conceptualize it. Or nothing even if not, not exist. Yeah, even if we can't conceptualize it necessarily, we are aware of the idea of nothing, so nothing must exist. Yes. Right? The very part of the idea of putting a word boundary around it. And I like that. Uh, I think Parmenides was right. Because to, to jump to another thing I just said, so we I'll try to keep connected, I promise, <laughs> I just, is, is if someone asks you as, uh, what's bothering you and you say nothing, what you're doing is saying, um, I don't want to talk about it, or I don't want to give more attention to it. Um, it's rather like trying to look at the Pleiades in the sky at night. If you try to stare directly at the Pleiades most nights, you're not going to see it. But if you look out of the corner of your eye, that's where so much horror fiction comes from. Mm -hmm. The idea there's nothing there is there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think Parmenides was right from the get-go. Yeah, and there's, I mean, throughout time, there's been a lot of philosophers that have backed him up. Um, you know, Plato and, and all the way through to, you know, even Einstein's sort of ideas of physics kind of back up Parmenides. So, yes. but Aristotle and Descartes and among others kind of served as a foil to, to Parmenides' line of reasoning. Um, you want to kind of talk about what they, yes, what their counter yes. was? Uh, I, because it seems to be uh vastly different but when when you get when you get down to it all right so Descartes talking from the scientific viewpoint and and the vacuum and, and just another connection remember we talked about somebody else fairly recently who, is to yeah. change the <laughs> idea of, of of because there a vacuum exists mm. uh uh so a vacuum is initially a, sp a space in which nothing, <laughs> no, no molecules, no, no air, no anything. But, and, and that's where you start. But then as physics progresses, one finds that there are things, particles, which we actually can capture occasionally, like the God particle. Mm. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and, and, and that dark matter may be this goopy thing that's filling space and although we can't see it. And so just in that, in that brief, ridiculous sentence, there are like three different kinds of nothing, you know, and, and so. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the listeners, you know, you might have a hard time sort of conceptualizing this but so parmenides is saying yeah um nothing exists because we can conceptualize it and then you have you know aristotle and, and descartes and these other people looking at vacuum pascal looking and saying well yes. yeah but vac vacuums exist um and then um and other you know other philosophers fighting against saying no like vacuums don't exist there's there's ether there's this this, right. this other thing that fills it not you know you can't 
you know, um, you can't have anything that there's no space where there's nothing. But if you don't know, and this is where Descartes going from too, if you don't, um, if you say, I, I don't know, and you say, I think something is there, but it seems to be nothing. Uh, it, the vacuity itself is useless as a concept as far as is concerned in the sense that it doesn't tell us anything. Hmm. If we get stuck on vacuum, and and it's okay uh but we're not um we're not providing character we're not developing the thought until down the line past them the einstein and then wade into aj errors and bergson and other philosophers who are examining the the more the etymological uh, metaphysical concept yeah yeah and so um, you know, ether, this idea of, you know, <laughs> something filling the void that we consider to be nothing is an ancient concept, but it's, it's still one like why I was talking about in the intro where, um, even today, right? Physicists say that there's no such thing as empty space. You have fields and, and particles that pop in and out of existence constantly. So. <laughs> Is there nothing? Is there ever nothing? It, it becomes a, a very sticky topic. <laughs> so, but you know, those are those are kind of the two the two ancient positions. There's is that well, yeah, you know, nothing exists in theory, but it doesn't exist, you know, practically. And then there was um, the other, you know, Pascal and some of the other ones that were saying, well, no, we can we can create a vacuum, and there's there's nothing there, and and then they and and and. And then we, and it's not framed by, but sort of uh, the Venn thing again, the Venn diagram, it intersects with nothingness. And, and whether we're talking about scientific nothing or religious, theologically focused nothing, uh, I mean, in, in ancient mythology, of chaos was nothing. <laughs> so, and you think chaos, and the first thing in one's mind, in my mind, chaos was never nothing. Yeah, chaos seems to me like if you were to try to narrow it down, do you think there'd have to be two things that are interfering with each other randomly? To me, that seems to be sort of a, a working definition of chaos in the way that we conceptualize it, right? You have to have at least two different things that are interacting with each other in a in a unpredictable way. But that's very scientific, isn't it? And if you if you're yeah. going to uh, in the beginning, there was nothing. <laughs> uh, we're back to what we talked about with nowhere, with the, the singularity popping. But now that's scientific. But there's also you know cre creation ex nihilo, nihilo, something out of nothing. But even in Norse mythology. Um, Ganungagap, um, actually, the word gap is associated with nothing and chaos. Hmm. So we've got a gap between things. Does that mean there's nothing there? I mean, what happens that you, you know, you, you've studied so thoroughly, are studying so thoroughly to, to the, to the terminal degree, uh, in psychology. What happens in the phys, in the, in the, in the physiology of the brain between synapses yeah you know there's there's 
So none of your neurons touch. So you have this empty space between neurons and then you have chemical neurotransmitters that go from one, you know, axon to the other dendrite in the synapse. When I was a kid, they, they talked about it being like lightning zipping from mm. one thing to another, but it's more chemical. Yeah, you know? yeah. And, but still there's that gap. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm not trying, I, I don't think I'm taking us off track. I just think that if we think about other, you know, and, and philosophers started, uh, some group, small group of philosophers started actually playing with the word, which I love, but the, so they, they call it noth. <laughs> and if I, it becomes a verb. Uh, so I'm nothing if I'm talking about nothing. <laughs> so I'm playing with noth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's a very difficult thing to conceptualize and, and, you know, throughout history, they've, they've thought about this, um, and Hegel dialectically synthesized <laughs> the concept of everything and the concept of nothing yes. as the act of becoming. Does that seem to ring true to you or what was he thinking when he was? No, I think, I think that that, that is true. But he, Hegel, uh, uh, later Bergson uh, in the early 1900s, uh, talking about this idea of, how, well, how does something come out of nothing? Must there be some seeds? Must there be some things there that can expand into what we know? Or is it truly just empty? I think that the, the, there's a fright factor in humanity. We are seemingly scared most of that which completely doesn't exist. If you had, and I suppose if you put your head into it, and I think this is partly what I think it, it, Hegel and Bergson are, are working on this, so if, or, or even even Nietzsche, when when if you stare into the abyss, what is an abyss? A great big crack in the world, a great big canyon, open, but but worse than that dark what do we what happens when we stare down into the ocean mm. uh, uh, a, a complete darkness if you stare into space and they're in a place where there's seemingly with the unaided eyes there's there, there's nothing <laughs> there's a, 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 a just a a negative space that seems to be unacceptable to our brains yeah because um you know our our everyday experience is predicated on causal factors, right? So mm -hmm. things come from other things. And um, the very idea of nothing, whether we ascribe it to, um, you know, what happened before the universe or what happens to our consciousness after we die or whatever other conceptions of nothing we have, the idea breaks that causal chain, right? Where all of a sudden, there's no first domino that sets the rest of them tipping, or there's no last domino to get tipped over and the motion ends. And that doesn't, um, it doesn't concatenate with our everyday experience. You know? No, and, and Bergson was talking about this too. So it, uh, that, and pointing out uh, why it doesn't quite follow it. If you, if you say, oh, well, Nothing uh, is what's left when you annihilate everything. 
So it's predicated on an annihilation that leaves a nothing. But that doesn't quite work because then you'd have to say, well, there was something before there was nothing. And we like to say there was nothing and then there was something. Hmm. And, and, and how can that happen? Yeah. And so I think that Hegel probably would disagree with Burks too, right? Because this idea of everything and nothing synthesizing to becoming, becoming generally moves in the direction from nothing to everything. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, do, is do you think that that is that necessarily true? If you are going from everything to nothing, is that also a form of becoming, or is that unbecoming? Or how would you? <laughs> <laughs> it's unbecoming for us to talk about. <laughs> yeah, but I love it. No, it's un. Uh, do I think that? Because I, you know, I mean, so I think that in a lot of cases we're thinking metaphysically here, but yeah. we can apply this to to people, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know. Hey, I don't remember anything before I was born. As far as my consciousness is concerned, there was nothing. And so now I'm becoming, I'm becoming a human being, right? But at some point, and you know, it's not, it's not a monolithic or a singular circumstance. It's, you know, it'll affect different parts of the brain and body differently. Mm -hmm. But at some point there will be an undoing, right? And that happens in stages, you know, some, some from the time you're born, some from the time you're a late teenager, some from the time you're a middle adult, some not until the very end of your life, but there is always going to be that undoing that will send you back towards nothing. So, so is that a coming? Is that a different? Are you are you constantly becoming, or when you start to become undone, is that a is that a different concept? I think that it's the first. I think it's. To this extent, <clears throat> because when you, you get to be in, uh, of an age where you're you're starting to think of the unraveling, <laughs> um, there's the potential. <clears throat> excuse me. There's the potential for something to come of what's there. I mean. I think most people know this now, but uh, just a little warning. If I say something here that sounds just a little gruesome, I, I don't think of it as gruesome, but um, there are people who are going to uh, have their bodies, uh, they arrange to have their bodies taken to special acreage where the body can just lie and decompose upon their death. And, and, and I, I think the FBI has a special place to do that, to study forensic. Uh, but the, the unbecoming, the unraveling of the body then mingles with the dirt. Things that people have said to their, their progeny for eons uh, become one with the soil. And then the soil becomes other things. We, our molecules become part of the air and do we then reform as something else well if we believe in some of the basic laws of physics then probably so to answer that i'm not trying to do a long answer but i think for me there is the there is something coming out of that unraveled nothing um and and so it's a process and it's yeah it's complicated, I think, because um, it's human nature to think about it from the ego state, right? To think of 
my life as being the singular event. Yes. yes so yes, yes. there was nothing before my consciousness. So when my consciousness ends, there is nothing again. Yes. But objectively, in in reality, that's not the way it works. And we've talked about this in the past with the hero's journey, right? Mm-hmm. We when in works of literature, the hero's journey focuses on the hero. Right. But in real life, each hero has an in you know a multitude of heroes journeys going and every character that you interact with in real life is also a hero with multiple heroes <laughs> journeys and so you know in one in one journey i'm the hero and another one i'm the wise old man and another one i'm the villain and not only that but in different scenarios i have different roles that i play and i'm in different parts of the journey mm-hmm. right <laughs> and so when you extrapolate that to the world as a whole it kind of takes into to account what you were saying. Um, yeah, I may not have, you know, there was nothing before I was born. There's nothing after I die. But yeah, after I die, you know, and they've done this. They've they've figured out the constituent elements of the human body, right? All right, if you take away all the, the water, here's the weight in minerals that the human body is made out of, right? And it decomposes and it gets made into other things, right? Plant matter or bacteria or, or other things like, mm-hmm. like that. The same way that other things had to die or be transformed. You know, our mothers had to, to eat things and metabolize them in order to turn them into us, right? right? So, <laughs> so it's all just part of this, this constant thing. Consciousness yeah. is just a very small part of that. Um, so yeah, this and so this really does reintroduce this idea of nothing again, right? If we're thinking about nothing from the singular ego state of one individual, that's a completely different concept than thinking about nothing on the In whole. Totality. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. That's, I think, and that's what eventually we get from Hegel to to Sartre, and Sartre writes being and nothingness. Mm. And Sartre is the one, Jean-Paul Sartre, the existentialist, who, who says that the idea of nothing is a great nauseation for, for a person to confront and, or a, a source of deep anxiety. And so a thing that the idea of non-existence is what troubles people. Even though we came from mm-hmm. non-existence, there's a non-existence is on both sides of us. Uh, you know, the, the phrase I was talking to my wife about this yesterday was some goofy advertisement on, on the radio, and it and it and it, it said uh, our services are end-to-end services. And I'm saying what? There's no beginning. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's end, but that's a business phrase, isn't it? Yeah, end-to-end. What are you talking about? Where is it? Is this the worm or Ouroboros eating itself? <laughs> is it, uh, so, but that's what human life is. End to end. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So we have, you know, he- Hegel's dialectic um, argument there. And then you, you brought up Sartre, which is great because, yeah, Sartre does sort of naturally um, extend from that in the Western world. But I think that some of the listeners might be wondering, okay, well, when you hear Hegel's dialectic mm-hmm. argument where you have the thesis of everything, uh, you know, I think he puts it as the absolute, the absolute, the absolute. being everything. Yep, yep, yep. And then, um, you know, the antithesis of the absolute being nothing. And then the synthesis being becoming, that sounds awfully Eastern, mm-hmm. right? 
what what is the difference what between what Heigl was saying and and what some Hindu or Buddhist or Ta- you know Taoist philosophies think about when they consider nothing? I think arguably it's it's an application of logic that is not required. No, and, and, and this capital R rational is not necessarily required in the. I'm saying this is one very in, incomplete and and raggedy practitioner of of yoga, as an example. One thinks, but then one feels. Uh, one goes intuitive, and and we know that intu- intuition has been found to be a kind of intelligence or an intellectual process too. But nonetheless, I think that uh, if you're putting the two things together, Hegel would seem much more rhetorically structured uh, as opposed to uh, a Zen cone. <laughs> um, what, what what is the sound of one hand clapping kind of thing? You know, you're going to think about it, you're going to process it, but then you're going to get past the thinking about it and just say, "Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah." So I think in a lot of in the the Eastern philosophies and religions, the nothing is. I think that it is more ego based, mm-hmm. right? You're you're attempting to cultivate that. Um, experience of nothing within yeah. yourself um what and what's interesting about that is that you know there's you know now with our scientific imaging and studies we can we can examine what's going on in people's brains and there there's actually physical changes taking place in the brains of of people who experience this type of nothing right well and, and you and you and you're right the ego is is bound up in what um, it, some Eastern philosophies concentrate on, but just this this too goes back to one of our pr- previous conversations, uh, in the sense of can one be utterly objective, which would be uh, to drop all ego and just to observe things as they are, <laughs> you know and. And I think that there's a correlation between that and the idea of the uh, egoless state, which is the ultimate state that one tries to perhaps reach in some Eastern philosophies. But but we know, <laughs> I say no carefully, that it's very, very difficult to reach a, a, a fully objective, maybe even impossible to reach a fully objective uh, a state of intellectuality when when you're dealing with a concept um, of the emotions and, and sooner or later do seem to kick in or the associations one makes and so that yeah that's the connection that's the connection between the two but i think i i, I still would say that hegel is much more um, um uh, argumentatively structured as opposed to the eastern which says not I'm not I'm oversimplifying that not just do it, but yeah, no, but I clinging. Yeah. And, and and Hegel's not saying quit clinging. Hegel's saying find the meeting place. Mm. Um there's there's a different yeah. message there. Yeah, I think that sums it up. There's a different message. And you know, maybe the the one that would be closest to what Hegel is talking would maybe be Taoism. Yeah. Because Taoism again, it it is 
it is highly intuitive, but essentially the idea there is that your language is incapable of capturing what nothingness is, but it's something that, you know, and it, it everything yeah. comes out of it. It's something that it was always there. It's always it's still always there. It's this, this, um, so I think that it's an intuitive way of, of sort of conceptualizing the more rational arguments. So in, in Taoism, you know, I often think in, in, in the mist, in, in the, in the Eastern, um, that, and well, and Hindu, uh, text is one example where where there's an inhalation and an exhalation. It's all very organic. Hegel does not talk in the sense of an organic universe. But what you just said took me to that because um, existence comes out of the exhalation. The inhalation is non-existence. You exhale and out comes stuff. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's it's uh, interesting to look at the different um, mm. different paradigms. But so, can and does nothing exist? I mean, we've we've we attempted very clumsily, right, yes, to look at the historical, um, you know, right. conception. And you know, I think just uh, again, sort of recap. Um, you know, Parmenides and Democritus and, and Plato and Aristotle, mm -hmm. these guys, you know, they were thinking about, uh, you know, not, not in modern physics terms, but they were thinking about the fact that everything in the world is made up of, of atoms. Um, and if it's completely filled, right, then there can be no anything. But if there, if there is no nothing, then how does anything move? Is motion possible? And they come to the conclusion, well, yeah, motion's possible if, the if you're using stuff to move other stuff out of the way but there's still no nothing right so it was simplistic and it was rudimentary back th i mean it was very advanced for back then for but then but uh, now looking at it now we think of it as simplistic or rudimentary yeah. but has our modern conception of physics or or the philosophies that have thought about it since then have we moved much beyond that in terms of determining whether or not nothing does exist or can possibly exist i think we've we're starting oddly to come full circle or, or if not for full circle we're, we're going up the spiral again uh, the etymology is always interesting you know that i find it just that and and i know we didn't start with etymology because <laughs> i i knocked us like a billiard ball um, but the the latin um there's a word uh, nihilium um and uh, the, the one smaller particle uh ne or ne ne means not helium means a trifle nothing or nothingness uh, literally comes out of a word that means not a trifle <coughs> In other words, it is a very not trivial thing. <laughs> and, and I think we're arriving at that with the quantum physics, metaphysics. I think we're coming to what the original concept 
or and part of the original concept was. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that there's there's still these questions that that we can ask ourselves that that physics and science don't help us out with, right? You know, and Shakespeare does. Shakespeare does. <laughs> when you say, "All right, well, everything," you know, there was a big bang, right? Now, an, an infinite point of uh, matter and energy that that expanded. Well, what did it expand into? Right? Where did, where did it, you it know, expand what, into nowhere? Right. Yeah. <laughs> where there was nothing. Where there right? was nothing. So we, and, you know, the, I, as far as science and physics go, they say, well, that's a nonsense question to even ask, right? It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. But, but psychologically, in, 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 in humanity's terms, and I'm, I'm serious about this with Shakespeare, I think if you pair it, pair it, not pair it like the bird. <laughs> If you pair it with uh, the, the science, uh, I think interesting things can come of that. For instance, uh, in no particular order, but if uh, for those who are familiar with Shakespeare, or maybe you can re-access those, those frightening days of being in school and having to, to read it. <laughs> uh, King Lear asked three daughters, his three daughters, to tell him, how wonderful they think he is, and he's going to cut his land in three parts and give the most to the daughter who tells him most. It's a ridiculously egoistic, talking the Eastern, uh, act, an arrogant act. And, and, the, and one daughter holds forth, and the next daughter holds forth even more, and he carves up his map and gives those. And, then, and, and the third daughter essentially says, I have nothing to say. And Lear says, nothing comes from nothing. Speak again. <laughs> In other words, that wasn't the right answer, daughter. You better say something good about me. <laughs> but nothing comes from nothing. Yeah, it's interesting because that kind of correlates with the the mathematical concept of dividing by zero, right? Mm. You know, it's mm. sort of, and that I think that that is the existential to get back to Sartre, right? The uh, the existential uh, anxiety associated with nothing is is this idea that the causal relationships break down. You know, what what happened at the beginning and what happens at the end don't make sense because you divide by zero and you and you you don't have anything that comes from it right right and so you have that you're in this state of of constant questioning as a as a human because everything in our in our experience has a causal factor and thus the titular meaning the title the name this part of the name of what we called this podcast is about that very thing yeah yeah you have to question everything and ultimately, uh, existentially, you make meaning for yourself at that moment, but it may be a transitional uh, or transformational uh, or transactive meaning. Yes, all, all answers are tentative. And then there's Macbeth. Nothing is but what is not. <laughs> that's yeah that's a good one. Uh, all right so so now we get into the deeply psychological and and we have to rehash the whole story of Macbeth but this is a person who has been convinced 
by witches, by voices, perhaps from the interior, uh, directed all kinds of ways and interpreted all kinds of ways. But, but I like to think of it as a psychological. Maybe the universe is pushing a little bit. Uh, nothing exists but what doesn't. The things we weave in our head about our experience in life is not necessarily what actually happened. Mm. And so there's, uh, the, I think it acknowledges the ultimately subjective and this, um, uh, if not trap or prison, this very difficult space we are in, in our own heads, where uh, in some ways it's kind of like the light trying to emerge from a black hole or a photon bouncing around in the sun for a million years until it comes out. We are, we are, we are blocked by our own perceptions as much as we are aided by our own perceptions we have to find our way out and so i not nothing is but what is not is is a really powerful potent thought to me yeah yeah and, and you said something there that reminded gives me a, a different sort of anecdote or, or vision of it right when we when we ask kenner does nothing exist and we consider the philosophical and scientific evidence that we have it seems very difficult to try to say that it does um because but like an analogy right is that if you ever have any light darkness disappears but darkness still exists right you can yeah, still campfire <laughs> you can still have a situation in where there's no photons um and <laughs> so i feel like nothing is the same way yes sure anything automatically dispels nothing but nothing having no thing to me it does seem like it 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 could exist if if not in our past or in our future in a in another universe it could mm -hmm. you know there's there's it, as a matter of fact it's probably statistically must much more likely and it's funny because they, they have um arguments about this right multiverse arguments where they say it seems much more likely that there'd be an in, you know a many universes that had nothing in them but then they said well actually you could only have one universe that has nothing <laughs> um because if you had any more it, strange stuff happens but so nothing becomes everything this is where this really cool inversion happens. yeah yeah if, if it's no thing as in no uh, identifiable single thing well then it must be yes because everything. if you had multiple universes that had nothing in them then you'd have two universes that had nothing and two universes would be a thing mm -hmm. it would be multiple things mm -hmm. right and this is you know we've talked about in the past roger penrose's idea of, of a cyclical universe and how if things get spread out enough so that there's nothing the mathematics is the same as an infinitely dense point of space right so there's there's a sort of cyclical thing that um again is is you know uh represented in intuitively in Taoism yes, and rationally Eastern philosophies are about the cycles yeah or or even the, and I, I won't pretend to hold forth about Hinduism as a religion but in the some of the conceptual it's a cycle. 
And that's why I think it's interesting to look at, at Hegel's dialectic argument mm. and specifically the idea of becoming, right? Because when we were thinking about becoming over the human life and that question of is the motion throughout life from birth to death all becoming or when you start to decline, does becoming change into something else? Does becoming change into decline, right? Um, because you know, then, because I think that that affects the cyclical nature of the conception, right? Um, I, I, it's, it's difficult to, to, to think about that way, but yeah, what is becoming would be another good episode. To well, well it, it would, and I think we probably should, but I, but I'm glad you're dwelling on, on Heigl because, because his assertion, his finding in the dialectic, nothing, everything be, in, in between, uh, becoming is a process. Uh, becoming is uh, into the future, and becoming has this connotation of positiveness, uh, not a negativeness, and positiveness, and and uh, people don't want to. Well, yeah, but if you're talking about your body unraveling, that's not positive. Well, now, now, no, not when you're experiencing it. That would be uh, an insult and a stupid thing to say to anybody who's going through horror and pain as their bodies decline. But it is still, I think, perceptively a becoming because there's always change. Always change means something is happening. Other things are coming. Things are changing things are moving and and movement isn't always a nice thing <laughs> mm. but it is ultimately useful yeah and unavoidable right yeah it's the you know the i think it's like we talked about the focus of the becoming has to transcend the individual in order for it to right. continue to take on a, a, a connotation like that so if we apply that to the universe right this idea of um going from you know becoming and we look at what we know now about the physics of the universe essentially the universe will follow a similar path to the human lifetime right as far as we know right is that it will continue to grow older and older and eventually it will die hmm. um and like we said we've talked about cyclical cosmologies and they're not ruled out but they're also not the the scientific mainstream right the mainstream ideas that you know there will be a heat death of the universe in a hundred trillion years from now there will just there will be nothing except for a diffuse energy state and that's just the way it will be from that point on except if that's how it was at the beginning <laughs> right <laughs> and that's where those yeah yeah so we have a we have a, a language thing going on here, a first rate language. Yes, uh, wrestling match. And I hope that's not discouraging the listeners because it's, <laughs> but it, it is a good exercise in philosophy. It's that sometimes you just have to fight through these issues, and and so that's that's the next question I had yeah. is, um, nowhere and nothing are different conceptually, but are they different in practically? I don't, th I, I think practically there's a relationship between them. And that's partly why we, why we chose what we did for, for this, this thing that we do. Uh, it's because 
while we had, I said last week that nowhere would indicate something cartographically un, unmapped or uh, a, a space that is not identified or not considered valid considered valued so it's it's uncharacterized in some way and nothing is uncharacterized in some way both imply a process to characterize to question and therefore to understand and perhaps to offer more of a description or more of a framework than existed before it doesn't imply creating the whole thing it just implies, well okay ah oh, it's like um it's like i feel again sometimes with with um uh, at play with my my granddaughter who wants to build uh, a, a castle or a, a something uh, a structure and we'll grab a couple of stones and put it together and maybe slap a little snow on it and say, okay, grandpa, let's go do something else. And, and so was the structure built? Well, rudimentarily the beginnings of it are there, but that's what philosophy is. Yeah. You know, oh, we're put a couple more stones in the foundation over, over at uh, a place near us, Geneseo, there's uh, a great big stone wall, not tall, a stone wall around a large estate. And there, there has been uh, this effort to preserve the historical aesthetic of that, that's, um, low, but substantial stone wall. And, and people volunteer. They go out and they add more stones. They add a little more mortar. They're, they're shaping it. That's what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, some weeks we, we, we build a lot more than we can other weeks. <laughs> and there's nothing, there's nothing that's harder to build than nothing. So, so we've struggled with it. But, um, I think that when I'm thinking about the relationship between nowhere and nothing, one of the, one of the things we talked about in the nowhere episode was that actual nowhere means that you have nothing to navigate by you there's no landmarks right that's what no stars no landmarks. right that's what that's what sort of um conceptually defines nowhere but a lack of landmarks you have to have nothing in order to have nowhere even though the one is talking about things and the one is talking about a place if you have anything in a place it is a landmark by which you could navigate right um if you had a field you could you know you had a magnetic field right you'd know a direction or if you had a, you know some piece of mass you would have a, a a landmark so i think that in practice they're they're probably not separate you know if you if you had nothing you would be nowhere and if you were nowhere there would be nothing which which i think to be in in all seriousness is is a state of being that uh, many people find themselves in one hopes temporarily but in in in, in the to on the topic of mental health there's a, a, an awful lot of feeling sometimes nowhere or sometimes having nothing to guide you or to cling to so it becomes very psychological and not just object physical object oriented i think that the same thing holds true for uh, finding something to navigate help you navigate out of the the nothingness or the nowhereness of uh, the, the darkness yeah and i think that that 
you know, that is, um, can be integrated into the cyclical paradigm too, because I think that if you reach that point where you feel like you are nowhere in life or that you have nothing, usually that is the result of, of everything, right? That has that, taken place. Everything, yes. Yeah. Everything builds up to a fever pitch until it appears to be nothing, right? Yeah. Um, but the one last interesting thing there, right? So we, we talked, we just talked about how nowhere and nothing, they seem to be of a piece. integral. Yeah. Yes. What do you think about, what do you think that does to time? Right? Hmm. Cause we have space time, which is a single fabric. So if you are nowhere, you have no place, you have no thing. Do you also have no time? Uh, seemingly. Uh, I, I'm just I'm, I'm off the cuff following you on on this one. It's a good question. So let's let's pursue it. If you if you have in space time, you you have no discernible place or nothing around you. Then um, what what do we have? Well, the experiments of sensory deprivation, a loss of of a sense of time, takes place in those. At least from as I've read them uh, over the years. So if you put yourself in a zone of complete flotation, utterly uh, utter darkness, without sound, then you probably don't know what time of day it is or how long you've been there. And I th and I think that that's an extreme example of something. Sometimes what happens to us if we're in a more po positive way of, of composing music or making art or, or having company with somebody we really enjoy. We're not watching the clock. I mean, is, think of that as a phrase. If you, if you don't watch the clock, you're not sure what time it is anymore. You lose track of time. If you're, 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 you are uh, willfully not wanting the markers. Yeah, and that, that's interesting too, right? Because the the difference between the positive and the negative, right? Mm -hmm. Between having no time and having no sense of time due to being in a flow state or feeling like you have nothing or you're nowhere in life versus having a singular focus and yeah, again, yeah. which is associated with a flow state or with um, a deep sense of meditative self-awareness, these mm -hmm. sorts of things. It's almost hairline, right? The difference between nothing, um, you know, it, we think of everything as being a you know, multitudinous, right? It, it, the, the, the sum total of everything. But I think that when we look at it on a, at least in an Eastern philosophical way or in um, a psychological health type of way, mm -hmm. everything tends to be more conceptually associated with a unity of all things rather than a multitude of things. And so the yeah. unity of everything, yeah. right? And the, again, with Heigl, the, the absolute, the absolute, that term seems to connote a, um, a unity of things. And I think, so I think that if you have, if you have a multitude of things, um, psychologically, you tend to suffer, or the, when you're viewing the the metaphysics of the universe, you tend to become overwhelmed. Um, and if you have nothing, then you are existentially in the depths of despair. Right? You, you, there's nothing. There's a, but if you have 
everything focused into one thing, a unity, that tends to be where you see a lot of mystic, you know, mystical <laughs> and, and mental health um, tends to flourish in some ways. Yeah. So it, it's an interesting, it, it, really, I, I, it makes me think of Loki, right? You know, you with the, with the sacred timeline there, if you, yeah. if you have no time, then nobody exists and you're nowhere. You have nothing. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but if you have all of these unpruned branches going off, then it's just chaos, right? And there, there's, there's everything. The, the, the but if, if you have a unity of time, then there's a cohesiveness to it. Right. And they go back and forth throughout the series and you know, whether, the sacred timeline or, or the unpruned uh, thing is, is what's right. What's, well, right. You know, because what happens to all those worlds that are destroyed in order for the sacred timeline to take place? It's, it's a very interesting, you know, it's, it's pop culture, but it, again, it's very interesting what it does with that. And, and Eastern and following, you've led me to another place with, with uh, the Eastern idea or, and our Middle Eastern idea, which is where Christianity and, and, and Judaism and, uh, and the Muslim uh, philosophies all came out of the same spot, uh, you know, uh, abandon what you have, give away what you have and follow me, all, the, all of those kind of things. We have characters in our storytelling. I'm thinking of one now that's very popular uh, from a group of novels is, that's called Reacher. It's about a, a, you know, a, a person who was in the military and now he's just out. He, he literally, his, his, when somebody says, unpack your luggage, he takes out his toothbrush and puts it down on the, on, on a counter. Um, and, and there's a, a, an exploration of this disconnectedness. Uh, when his friends, there's in a situation, I'm not going to spoil anything, but, but his, his, his former colleagues and, and, and friends, um, ask him things. Uh, and he, he complains, so how come everybody else has this picture of all of us and I, and I don't? And they said, where do you hang a picture when you don't have a wall? Hmm. You know, and, and how are we to reach you? <laughs> when so he's reacher but and it's hard to reach him and he's a wandering figure by choice who is who's disconnected from almost everything and yet has a sense of justice that is trans transforming him into something uh or or co coalescing him into something that's human not quite human yeah and, and i mean yeah bringing it back into like the 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 real world right when we when they do imaging studies on expert meditators i saw one just recently they they looked at a guy who had 23,000 hours right and they looked at the parts of the brain you have separate parts of your brain um that that discern your point of view from how, how you view what other people's point of view is and what they found is in this expert meditator when he was looking at and thinking about other people that part of the part of the brain that lit up was the part that normally is the part that lights up when you're thinking about yourself. Hmm. So again, taking the multiple, right? If you think of the whole world as 8 billion other separate people from you, right? This, again, this idea, or that there's, there's nobody, right? So if there's, if there's nobody, nothing, nowhere, then you have existential dread. If you view everybody else as a separate thing, somebody that's separate from you and is out there, 
then it's just this frenzied chaos that you can't make sense of, right? But if you have that ability to look at everybody else and see some connection and see a unity, right? And, and to, to have some sort of shared concept of your own, of your health and your well-being on a singular level, that tends to be the better way of, of thinking about mm -hmm. life, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a deep message in there. I'm not sure that we're completely <laughs> capturing it, but Again, uh, you know, it's, we can completely. We, I think we've made a valiant effort, and it's we've we've gone in fits and starts. But like we said, you know, a few minutes ago, there's it, nothing harder to talk about than nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but I've had fun nothing with you. Yeah, and I, yeah, and I think that I think that in future episodes, I think that for as difficult as this one has been to talk about, I think in future episodes, it's definitely going to inform some of what we'll we'll talk about down the road so it's been a lot of fun regardless and until next yes. time